Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio episode number 93. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And I'm also excited. I'm Sean and I'm excited. <laughs> because in discussing this film, we're welcoming summer. We had a great week last week talking summer magic with Lou Mangello from WDW Radio. And that certainly sets the tone. But I love heat. I love the beach. I love the boat. I love the grill, so I wanted to go to the beach in the worst way possible, and there's no better way to do it than with Teen Beach Movie. Listeners, I don't think that you understand that Sean is a miserable person during the winter. Uh, yeah, I mean, and you know, especially in the Northeast, we don't really get a change of season much anymore. So to put this in perspective, I am miserable eight out of 12 months. So I pine to get in the backyard and light the charcoal on the grill like we're going to do as soon as we're done with this and crack a cold one and put on Jimmy Buffett and I just smile and I have fun. I'm going to paint this picture even farther. When it snows and we didn't, we really didn't get snow this season over the winter. We no, got, we got snow lucky. in May. Yeah, well, go figure. Which we made no sense. Well, 2020, not, anything yeah. makes sense, I guess. Yeah, yeah, anything true. goes. But whenever there's a snowstorm and we know we're going to be in for the day, like, you know, everybody clear the roads, cancel school. I'm talking about in the days before coronavirus. Yeah. When that was a, th when that when that was was a, a thing. unique thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sean puts on his board shorts and flip-flops and makes margaritas. And then he will go... And take a picture outside in the snow, like like he's conquering it or something. I yes, that's my way of saying I do not accept this weather. I do not accept this weather condition. I go onto YouTube, I find a couple of the beaches that I love in Florida, and I throw on beach scenes because inevitably you can find video of Siesta Key Beach, Cocoa Beach, Waikiki Beach, not in Florida, but it's a beach that I love, and I just throw them on loop. And I listen to Banana Republic, and I just enjoy life. I don't have to worry about that for at least the next few months. Although, hey, 2020, we might get snow and locusts tomorrow. But I'll worry about that tomorrow because I'm concerned today with Teen Beach. I have a bit of a history with this movie. There was a time where it was the winter. I was miserable. And I had just seen a documentary that is not safe for the kids. So uh, this is really just for adults. It's super interesting, but definitely don't watch with your kids. Amazing. Actually, it's an amazing documentary, but don't watch with the kids. It's called Spring Broke. It had been on Showtime, I think. But I think, actually, you can find it on Hulu. I think it's up there for free, as long as you have the Hulu subscription. But it is about the Spring Break Wars between Fort Lauderdale and Daytona Beach. And it goes from the 1950s all the way up through the 80s and 90s and the role that MTV played in it. It really, it, it's, it's absolutely spectacular. And to see how they all wanted spring break until they realized the circus that it brought and they didn't want spring break anymore. But one of the movies that they talked about 
in that documentary that drummed up a lot of interest in going to the coast for Florida was Where the Boys Are, which was based on a book that was written by a college professor who happened to be down on the coast for spring break. And he sort of just noticed what students were doing, and he wrote this novel. Fast forward now to the 1960s. So now I go down the rabbit hole. So I watch <laughs> Where the Boys Are, and then I watch uh, the uh, Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello beach movies, beach party, beach blanket bingo. And then, I, then I'm just, because there's like nine of those, I got to find some of these great beach movies. He's spinning now. Okay. I'm, ex- I'm spinning. I'm going down the rabbit hole. I have the cinder block tied to my foot to speed myself up a little bit. And I do a Google search to find out some of the best beach movies out there because there's so many of them, I don't want to waste my time. And, <laughs> and I come across on a list, and it was like in the top five teen beach movie. And I said, there's no way, no way that this movie could possibly be that good because it's a decom. Admittedly, I didn't have a lot of faith in decoms at the time. Um, and so I watched it. And I'll save the rest of the review for the actual discussion of the movie. But let's just say I have seen this movie multiple times and I believe it does deserve a place in that top five on that list. You had never seen the movie before. Not only had I not seen Teen Beach Movie, I came in completely green there, but I had never even really seen anything from this genre. I think, you know, when people talk about genre films, they think about horror, they think about sci-fi. This is something that gets often overlooked because they are kind of just like happy-go-lucky movies. But, you know, when I sat down for something like this, I was going to go to West Side Story, which I do love, or Grease, which if you've been a longtime listener of the show, you know that I hate Grease with the fire of a thousand suns. So because I had those and it was kind of an even split with love and hate, I never really felt the need to venture down the rabbit hole. I made sure that you did. Yes, you did. Um, and I showed you what was the worst. And I don't, I just said for me of the ones I've seen, it was the worst of the beach films, which was beach blanket bingo. It was terrible. I don't understand why people have this affinity for it. I don't know why they love it. I don't know why they talk about it. Like it's some great film beach party is fine it's cute it's funny they break out into musical numbers for no reason the age gap between the bikers and the surfers is staggering and makes no sense but at least it's kind of fun i do not understand the point of beach blanket bingo bubby i don't (laughs) understand it at all it makes no sense and that was the one that I used to introduce you into the genre, which may have been a mistake, but it was the only one I could DVR at the time. Terrible, terrible idea. If you're looking to maybe see one of these films and, you know, give, give yourself a basis of comparison for Teen Beach Movie, I would highly recommend Blue Hawaii starring Elvis. I mean, most of Elvis's Hawaii stuff was... They were all vehicles for him anyway, but as far as the genre goes, I think they do it better. 
they do it better than Beach Blanket Bingo. But it's, that's the thing. If you want to see a better movie, you watch Blue Hawaii between the two of them. If you want to see something that really is very much the beach genre. It's Annette. It was always Frankie and Annette. Then it has to be Beach Party. They're not easy to come across. You do have to pay to rent them. If you care so much to watch them, that's what you're going to have to do. Otherwise, Blue Hawaii is on Hulu. It's included. So you can go there, watch that, and you hear some great Elvis Presley music. Um, and you, you at least kind of get the feel for it. But those Frankie and Annette Beach movies are really the springboard for Teen Beach. And the movie starts when we meet Mac and Brady, a teenage couple who has spent their summer surfing and having fun. We also meet Mac's grandfather who makes surfboards and, like Brady, loves the beach film Wet Side Story. A film that Mac doesn't care for because Mac is, you know, the movie, it was made in in 2013, but it, it has that present day feel. It's modern and contemporary, much like Mac herself. And she... She's very much in the, and, and she's right to be so, of course. She's very much in the mindset of modern day thinking and where specifically a female's role in a relationship and a female's role in society is not what it had been in 1962 when the, when the wet side story had come out. So she has, there's no love lost between her and the film. So as the summer ends, Mac's, uh, Mac's Aunt Antoinette arrives to take her to the East Coast in order to attend a prep school, much to the surprise of Brady, because Mac's mother has passed away, and she made an agreement with her aunt that she would do the first half of high school in California. I, I believe it's California. I mean, listen, it's the West Coast and they're surfing. It's California. The first half of high school in California with her grandfather, and she would go to this prep school for the second half of high school. I kind of thought it was Hawaii. I, I, I don't know. It seems like so much more far removed, though, than California. I think because the film was shot in Puerto Rico, you're, it, it gives it that more um, rustic look, mm -hmm. uh, I know, for lack of a better term, more scenic. Like, yeah, like there's not a lot mountains. of hotels. It's, yes. That's not to say that it's undeveloped, but it's something like when we were talking about the Pirates of the Caribbean films a couple of weeks ago, they needed a location that was untouched to make it look authentic to where they were shooting. And even though this is a much more contemporary film, the same applies here. You know, you're not going to put them, especially with all the musical numbers and the singing and dancing, you need it to look remote. You need it to look small town. You can't have it be in the middle of, of a tourist trap. They never overtly say where they are, but I got the feeling that it was somewhere like Malibu. You're in the hills. That was how I took it. I could be wrong, but they're they're not well. They're nondescript anywhere USA because that's where they eventually end up. We're gonna get there in just a minute because the next day, as Mac is packing her bags, she decides that she wants to surf some extreme conditions that are being caused by a storm. So she grabs the family's sacred surfboard that has been passed down generation to generation, and she heads off with the intent on being back in time to make her flight with her aunt to the East Coast later that day. As Mac attempts to surf, the storm gets worse, 
And Brady, who is watching along with her grandfather and some other people on the beach, he sets off on a jet ski to stop her, which turns into a rescue after Mac is thrown off the board and pulled under the surf. A combination of the storm meeting the magic of her family's surfboard sends them back in time, but rather than coming up to shore in the real world, they see that they have been sent directly into the film Wet Side Story, which... Brady is thrilled about, while Mac is concerned really with getting home and making her flight. As they navigate this confusing situation and try to figure out a way home, they attend a party at the Surf Shack Big Mama's. While there, they accidentally interfere with the meet-cute between the surfer Tanner and the biker Layla, which would have set up a turf war between the bikers and the surfers and given the movie what is really the heart of its story. Basically what happens to, to try and sum it up quickly is in the, in wet side story, Layla is performing a song falls off the stage that she's on at big mama's, but Tanner is there to catch her and they fall for each other. In this case, Mac trips and falls on the dance floor. Tanner catches her. And because Tanner is with Mac, no one is there to catch Layla and instinct kicks in, and it's uh, Brady that catches Layla. So now, instead of Tanner fall, uh, instead of Tanner and Layla falling for each other, Tanner falls for Mac. Layla falls for Brady, changing the movie and leaving the characters confused as to what to do next. They also realize that the rash guard that Mac was wearing when she arrived has now disappeared, and that they will likely start to morph into the movie permanently if they don't find a way out. As it turns out, this is where it gets a little confusing because we're talking about a movie inside of a movie. As it turns out, there is a subplot of Wet Side Story, which involves Les Camembert and Dr. Fusion turning a lighthouse into a weather-altering machine in order to turn the beach into an unfavorable spot, forcing the surfers and bikers to leave in order for them to take control of the land and turn it into an overpriced resort. The film ends when Tanner and Layla fall in love and unite the surfers and the rival motorcycle gang, the Rodents, uh, and together they destroy the evil lighthouse, which triggers a huge storm. Now, Mac and Brady see that storm as their ticket home. So they decide that they're going to deflect Tanner and Layla's affections off of themselves and back onto Tanner and Layla in order to get Wet Side Story back on track and ensure that the storm happens. But this is much easier said than done. That night, Mac attends a pajama party with Layla and the other girls from the rodents while Brady hangs out at Big Mama's with Tanner and the surfers. They try to insert sort of their modern wisdom, their modern way of life into this world of the 1960s, but are met with hesitation. Um, the next day, Mac surfs with Tanner and learns that he is much smarter than he appears in the film. And Layla also confesses to Mac later on that she wants to learn to surf. And Mac tells her that girls can do anything that boys can do and that she shouldn't let anybody dictate who she is. Layla uh, is then told... Well, Layla then tells Mac that they're going to be friends for life and that she really kind of looks up to her for being a great surfer. So Mac devises a plan to tell Layla that Brady will teach her how to surf, all the while planning to get Tanner there instead. 
which needs to happen quickly because she and Brady are now morphing into the movie permanently. Their hair does not get wet when they go into water. They break out into song randomly, much to the chagrin of Mac more so than Brady because he's having the time of his life and he really doesn't want to leave. He doesn't want to leave his favorite movie and he doesn't want to lose his girl to the East Coast. While Layla waits at the beach for Brady, Mac tells Tanner to walk down the beach and that she would catch up with him later, which is obviously not her intention. Meanwhile, Camembert and Fusion kidnap Mac and Brady. Tanner and Layla meet on the beach and fall in love, but are alarmed when a flowered headband that Tanner made for Mac washes up on the beach. Fearing the worst, Tanner and Layla go to Big Mama's and unite the surfers and the bikers in order to track down and save Mac and Brady, who they assume are in trouble. The group storms the lighthouse and destroys the weather-altering machine, just as they were supposed to. Layla gives Mac her necklace to always remember her by, the necklace that she wears in the film, um, and they set off in the storm on her family's magic surfboard. Um... The combination of the storm and the magic of the surfboard work again, and they are sent back to present day at the exact moment when they disappear. Mac is able to surf the big wave that she always wanted to. She comes up on the beach. Her aunt is there. She's furious. She tells her aunt, you know what? I'm not going to be what somebody else wants me to be. It's great that it worked out for you. I want to stay here with Brady and with Grandpa, and I want to surf, and this is where I want to be. And... Her aunt reluctantly agrees to let her stay. They have one last dance on the beach just for fun. And then we have a little post credit scene where a number of surfers and a number of rodents from Wet Side Story are washed up on the beach in present day. And they set off to find Mac and Brady because they miss them and because now they have to figure out how to get back into their movie so a lot going on because it's a movie inside of a movie right but i really want to start breaking this down here because what i like immediately we're starting right from the jump we see that brady and mac they're a young couple they're in high school it's a summer fling they're they're having a great time and then we meet the grandfather, and they, they lay out Wet Side Story very quickly. Right. The plot, the fact that the grandfather and Brady love it. Mac goes on as to why she does not like it at all. But it's quick. The setup is quick. They don't really waste a lot of time setting up the relationship, getting into the drama that she's going to get pulled away, or setting up exactly what we are going to be seeing once we get into the world of wet side story. Right. Because the main part of this movie takes place in wet side story. So right. you got to get him there. It's got to happen fast. But what's impressive is that in very little time and for such young talent, the chemistry between Brady and Mac, I feel is very believable and Almost yeah, Ross a, Lynch and Maya Mitchell. Yes, almost to a point where um, I kind of felt like it was more than a summer fling. Like maybe they had been together for a couple of years in high school. Um, but then you almost don't believe why, why or how she never told him right. that it was always her intention to go finish high school somewhere else. Um, I think it's a great setup too 
having Brady and, and Mac's grandpa watch Wet Side Story, even though it's just a little snippet of it, and Mac calls out basically all of the tropes of mm-hmm. these beach movies. And it's a great setup because we're going to spend the rest of the film either making fun of them or parody- parodying them in some way and sort of righting the wrongs of all these older movies, which we're going to get into. Um, and that also plays into Max's character a little bit because she is very strong. She is very independent. She is a feminist. And that's what most of her issues are with the film. So it's, it's a great setup across the board. Yeah. We get into the surfing scenes specifically where Mac goes to ride the extreme conditions as she puts them because of the storm. These surfing scenes are incredibly shot. They're really good. For a decom, I'm totally taken aback with how good it is. And and with Maya Mitchell's performance as well because I think they're using a double in the wide shots if I'm not mistaken. Right. But a lot of it is shot on what looks like a GoPro and she's really out on the board. You can't fake that. Um, so that that was super impressive, especially when you compare it to like our last decom when, you know, we were talking about how egregious some of the CGI was in Don't Look Under the Bed. I was like, wow, decoms really came a long way. They've come a big way. There is some bad CGI in this one, too. But for for this part, they didn't fake it. Yeah. And I think for the for the most part, the bad CGI is really good um, because I think without jumping too far ahead, the bad CGI, a lot of it is just really bad green screen, but I feel like that was done stylistically to look like the horrendous blue screen imagery that you saw in the early beach films. I don't think it was done cheaply because it's a decom. I think that was more of an artistic choice to make it look authentic to those old beach movies. I would definitely agree with that. And I think that's also why it was so important to make the, these surfing shots look authentic because later on they do put Mac and Tanner up in front of the green or blue screen where, you know, it's very clear that they're standing in a studio and just shaking a little bit yeah, to make it look like they're balancing. Face. Yeah. Um, so I think to get that kind of a juxtaposition to show how fake it was back in the day, it was important for it to look good here. I think the bad CGI are the shots, excuse me, I think are the shots of the lighthouse um, that we see, the fusion lighthouse. Those look like something that came off of the, uh, like the PlayStation 2. Those are not terribly impressive shots. Right. But otherwise, it's, I think it's really good. And I absolutely love the reveal as soon as they get sucked into Wet Side Story. Yes. It's not just the fact that their hair isn't wet. It's not even so much that you start to hear all of the music. It's the look on Mac and Brady's faces and how totally different they are. They're both astonished at first. Mac is clearly in pain, how having been, uh, now having been thrown into this world that she hates... And Brady is a kid in a candy store because it's his favorite movie. It's brilliant because, I mean, how many times when you were a kid did you wish you could get pulled into your favorite movie? Right. And, uh, 
you know, he's he's totally loving it. And it really adds to the conflict between the two of them because they're already they're not officially broken up. We kind of skipped over this part a little bit. I I can appreciate the backstory that they've given Mackenzie that she lost her mother and it's a Disney film after all. Yes, she lost her mother and the mother had given her a journal or she had her mother's journal that said she wanted Mackenzie to be successful and Mac really took that to heart and for whatever reason she translated that into she has to go and be like her aunt who was a successful Business corporate woman, something yeah. or other we don't know all we know is she's got like a bluetooth in her ear and she she talks at random to the people in her head yes um mergers and acquisitions exactly acceptable <laughs> um so she kind of left things with Brady where she didn't want to break up with him, but she didn't want to put him through the pain of missing her. And all good reasons. She said, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I care about you too much to have you miss someone. You don't know what that's like. And she does because she misses her mother. So they're not officially broken up at this point, but if it were Facebook, they'd, it, it would be complicated. Exactly. And this just sort of feeds the fire because now he's living his dream and she's in her nightmare. Exactly. But I think that immediately the cast is great together. You see that in the first musical number and we will break down the songs in just a few moments here. But the chemistry throughout the entire cast I think is as good as the chemistry is between Mac and Brady. What really strikes me, too, is how much this cast seems to grasp the source material here. It's incredible. Yeah, because I feel like, you know, if you're a millennial who's never heard of these movies, you're, you're going to think they're terrible. Right. So I have to imagine, you know, all of these actors and actresses did their homework, they went back through the catalog and and they watched the Frankie and Annette videos. I'm sure, especially because of Annette Funicello's links to Disney, that was like required research. So for them to embrace it the way that they did and and not be so over the top with it, because then it then this would have come off as really cheesy too. And they they don't really they don't really lean too much one way or the other. Mm-hmm. You can't exactly call it a parody because they're not necessarily making fun of it. Right. And where this musical is different from a musical like West Side Story or Grease or throw a dart at any musical that you've seen that has been made into a film. They break out into song randomly, which they obviously parody in this film. But what they do differently here, and it's hard to put my finger on. But I think it's the way that the actors and actresses pull it off. The fact that they really do cheese it up. They really do make it seem fabricated. You believe that this is something that they... It's not something that they break into randomly. It's what they do every single day. Because it is what they do every single day. Because it's like Groundhog Day. They just... These... they They're living the movie all day every day because that's the only world that they're accustomed to. They don't age. There's no new drama. There's no new tension. It's just lather, rinse, repeat. They're very one-dimensional in that way, 
but it's so intentional and that's right. why it all works. And I think that also has to do with Mac calling it out in the beginning. The other thing is that all of the music is contained to Wet Side Story. So it's not like Mac and Brady are in their real life everyday situations where they're breaking out into song. And that's where it would seem a little forced here. I mean, it still does because that's a convention of a musical where they do just break out into song, but it's, that's part of the parody. Right. Because in the beach movies, as we saw uh, this past week, when we went back and revisited some of them in a musical, the story builds up into a song. In these beach movies, nothing happens, and it's just, boom, we're singing. Right, and it does nothing to drive the story forward. So yeah. I think in that regard, they're more parodying musicals in general than they are this genre. Because otherwise, they're not really poking fun at anything else. Right, and, and this genre, for its warts, is really the springboard of why they did this. And... You know, it was a, it was a, a Disney Channel movie that was a summer release. Kids are thinking about being at the beach with their friends, so like the it worked. I think they picked the right genre to tackle here. Exactly. So, the other thing that I'd like to point out right away is that the rodents. Now, in the in the beach party films, in the quote unquote beach films, the Frankie and Annette ones, those were the rats. In this, it's the rodents. So I think that it is a, it's a nice tip of the cat. It's a nice, uh, or a tip of the cap. It's a nice tribute that you pay so that it still feels like it's in the same vein. But what they did here is that the rodents are age appropriate. Yes. They are basically the same age as the surfers. It makes no sense in the beach films that the surfers are late teens, early 20s. Maybe they were trying to play them off like they were 16 or 17 years old, but obviously you know that they're not. But the bikers that are trying to take control of the beaches and the hangouts, they all look like they're in their 40s. That's something that I never understood about the genre films to begin with. It's like, let's take two things that are polar opposites and then we're going to have a turf war over it. I mean, I get it. You're You're really trying to fabricate conflict here but it's like i i never bought bikers as wanting to take over a beach who wants to go to a beach in leather <laughs> I like what know. are you fighting for i think you just had to find things that were the most polar opposite things and i think that in the in the 60s it, you had people that were still wearing their leather jackets and their motorcycles and they had their lucky strikes rolled up into their mm. white t-shirt sleeves. And then you had people that fell in love with Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys and they wanted to take the Woody down to the beach and go surfing. I, I think that there were just, those were the two things that were so popular at the time that those, what, that's what those beach movies could relate to because you couldn't get more opposite than them. And I think that you had the bikers that were listening to their rock, you know, real at the time rock and roll music and they were wearing their leather and riding the motorcycles around and smoking their cigarettes and then you had the kids that wanted to hold hands in the sand and listen to uh beach baby you know i i think that that's uh that's where you really draw that stark contrast i know i totally get it and i get why they're pitting them up against against each other but like if you're taking these archetypes i just still don't understand why a biker would want to go to the beach in all of that gear. Like, 
what if it was like the football sports jocks versus the surfers? Because you did kind of have that. Those are like high school movie archetypes, right? Where it's like you have the jocks picking on. Yeah, I guess the surfers were kind of considered more like the burnouts, I guess, as we get more into the 80s and 90s, that kind of thing, like Fast Times Ridgemont High or uh, Clueless, Days and Confused. Yeah. So that's why, like, I I mean, I totally get it. You're taking the polar opposites, but just reality and wardrobe wise, don't get it. Never going to. I don't know. It was 60 years ago. I can't answer this question for you as to why they did it, but it's what they did. Um, And... Up to this point now, the entire thing is so tongue-in-cheek, right? But it does not get old. No. It doesn't get old. And I really love how, as the movie starts to open up a little bit, um, they do a really... You kind of alluded to it before. They do a really great job of basically mirroring every single character and every single archetype that you see in those beach movies, and they and they basically shove them down your throat here. Yeah, and some of them, I mean, th- that's what I'm talking about. Like they, th- this cast just really got what was being asked of them, and and they nailed the characters. Like to me, Chichi steals every single scene yeah. that she's in. She's one of these biker girls, and she's got you know the the beehive on her head. It's it's as, her hair is teased as high as it can possibly go, and she's got like this thick New York accent, and she's just so funny. Like she's one of my favorite characters in this. Actually, I I love her in this. She's a scene stealer. She is a scene stealer. She's got great lines. She's got that high pitched giggle of a laugh that should be ear piercing, but it works for her. The constant bubblegum popping. Yeah, Struts does that too a little bit. Yeah, she's another one of the of the girls in the rodents. The only thing that I'm that I kind of got tired of up to this point in the film, because now we've we've seen the bikers and the surfers together and we've seen them feuding. I'm sort of over it a little bit with Mac hating Wet Side Story. Here's the thing. You said it before. She's a feminist. And she is not wrong in her views and opinions of how the role and the uh, caricature of the females in these movies were. Obviously, people are more aware of that sort of thing now, and I think that movies have really done... I, I think the world in general has done a fairly good job of starting to right the wrongs that were done for many, many years. It's not 100% there yet, but I think people are aware of it, and they are starting to right the ship. But at the same time, sometimes you defend a movie with saying, well, it was 1960. And how many times does she need to complain? And how many times does she need to be told, it, we, we, it's an old movie. We get it. It's an old movie. Before she just realizes, I am now in their world. I don't need to agree with it, but I am in their world and she's going to try to fix it in her own way possible. But I guess the problem that I have with it is less that she has a problem with it and more that she keeps talking about the same thing over and over again. My issue with it is more her reaction to everything. Yes. Even from the beginning when she sort of breaks up with Brady because 
Brady's really mad and has every right to be in that instance that she didn't tell him. And instead of feeling sad that she hurt him and sad that she has to leave a life that makes her happy, she gets mad at him for being mad at her. And that kind of continues throughout the rest of the film where she just gets mad at everything. And I just don't personally like it. It reminds me it's a very Dawson's Creek reaction to every situation she's in just like Joey, where she would never say what was wrong. She would just go run away or, or row away from Dawson's house and and wait until they came to her and she'd play the victim and she'd never really say why she was mad. That drives me crazy more because to circle back to what you said, she never really confronts the issue of the woman's role. She never accepts it and she does insert her own viewpoints, but she never does it in like a temper tantrum sort of way. Like she never attacks Layla for her beliefs. I think she realizes that she just doesn't know any better and she tries to coach her instead of like punishing her. Yeah, that makes it rather than, rather than do rather than having that share snap out of it moment. Exactly. She's got this, well, here I'm. I'm gonna show you, and I'm gonna go. I sort of get it because it. She's coming off as. Listen, she's helpful. She's trying to be helpful. But at times, I feel like it. I'm not gonna say it's condescending because it. It's never condescending. It's it, never it, holier than thou. That's what I was gonna say. I, I was gonna say sometimes it. It sort of does come off as such, as if I know better, so you should listen to me. No, I don't think so. Because she's not really condemning her for it. She's not directly condemning her for it. It it may just be the way that the lines are written or the way that the lines are delivered because Maya Mitchell does a great job in this movie, but there's just something about the way that she says it where it, you know what I think it is? I think it comes off disingenuous because every time she speaks, it's one of those kind of gooey motivational speeches. I think that's what it is. Now that I'm kind of fleshing it out, I think that's my bigger problem with it. It's never something that she says offhand. It's always a, we have to sit down and I'm going to explain this to you. And it's always this kind of, rah-rah sort of moment of empowerment, which is fine, but it doesn't feel authentic. I mean, I'll give you that, but I feel like in the moments with Layla, it comes out in sort of like a sisterly way where she's trying to give her advice. I think what you're talking about is more in her conversations with Brady, and that's more of her trashing the movies and the genre because she's getting like angry and sarcastic with him. And I think that's, that's where I get, that does kind of circle back to what I said is that she's just always getting angry with him and taking everything out on him. She's a where it's her own issues. Yes. She's also a little gushy and sounds like a manufactured motivational speaker. Like, they're like, here. I'm trying to prove my point. Here are the three points I need to make. And it's the same three points I make with everybody. She does it more 
in the pajama party scene right. with all of them when she's got her audience than when she's just with Layla because to, and we're getting a little bit ahead and we will circle back in just a moment. But while we're on the topic of that conversation she has with Layla, I think one problem I also have with Mac is that she sticks to her convictions. There's nothing wrong with that. But for the most part, I don't really think she grows as a character. Like, sometimes you get these moments in these films where you have a fish out of water, and even if they're justified and even if they're, even if they're right, they kind of... You catch them cracking a smile, and they let their guard down a little bit, and they start to... They start to see both sides of the coin. I'm not going to say they embrace the other side, but they sort of see both sides of the coin. And it's not until the very end of the movie when she actually starts to follow her own advice that she's been preaching this entire time. So I feel like she doesn't really grow as a character throughout this movie. At no point does anything that Layla says to her, other than we're friends for life, impact her in any way right the door is not swinging both ways because Mac's biggest hang-up is that she's so fixated on I have to go with my aunt to be successful and the other part of that that she doesn't say explicitly and I think they kind of touch on it but they don't really explore it enough is that she does not want to stay because of a boy so when she figures out that being with her grandfather and surfing and this life makes her happy. I don't think that she wanted to like Brady is a part of that decision, but she doesn't want to admit that because she, she doesn't want to admit that she's staying because of a boy. That's not her sole reasoning. You know, she doesn't do the Felicity thing where she moves to New York and decides what college she's basing her life on because of a boy. But They never really had her say that even though Brady is part of the package, she's okay with that too. And sometimes you can have both. And the reasoning doesn't have to be because of your relationship. And I think that's it. She's afraid that she's going to be looked down on for it or less of a feminist if she just picked it because of Brady. But they never say that, like, you can have your cake and eat it too here. Yes, and I think... Maybe I I would have loved to have seen a moment between her and Layla where she understood that because that that never happens to her or to say that when you meet the right guy who supports you and your dreams, that it's okay to be in that relationship, too, if it helps you to grow as a person. Right, because Brady is complete while he doesn't want Mac to leave, he says, I'll wait for you. Yeah, never stands in her way. And that that could have come from Layla. Exactly. I mean, Layla was all about finding a guy, settle down, have kids, but like that could have maybe been something where they they met in the middle and had a middle ground. I also want to circle back to to you know what brought this up earlier too, where you probably feel like Mac is browbeating all of this is also in her relationship with Tanner because he is the classic all the girls want me. It's a privilege to be with me and I'm just going to call you pretty and and that's going to be enough for you 
and she always corrects him. I don't have an issue with that so much. Um, I just have an issue with the fact that she... It's fine to keep telling the girls, don't let a boy dictate who you are. Don't let a boy dictate who you wear or what you wear. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. But once, at best twice, was enough. We don't need you to keep telling us how you hate the fact that you're here, how you disagree with what it is, how you don't want to be there. Like, once or twice was enough. More than that, in this instinct, I think was just too much. And I think it it made here. It made a strong character pouty. Ooh. Yeah. I I would definitely agree with that. And that definitely sets the movie back because what they're trying to do here is right the wrongs of the genre. And I'm not just talking about you know, sort of objectifying women and having them in the bikinis in the film. I'm talking about it was that you know, mentality of I need a man and I need to get wiped, wiped up. But it was also like, if you think about Beach Blanket Bingo, Frankie's character treated Annette like garbage. He's constantly looking at other women and putting her down. And then when she wants to skydive, yes, skydive in a beach film, he tells her, no, you can't because you're a girl. And eventually she does it anyway and, and proves him wrong. But I think that's where this movie was trying to really right the wrong of that kind of storytelling and expose all of the errors. And you lose it because she's having a very emotional response. Yes, I think that's spot on. Let's circle back around to where we left off. Yeah, um, where, where are we? <laughs> um, we, um, we're at the fallen freeze scene. Okay. Okay. We got through the, int- uh, because we haven't talked about the music yet, but we have talked about the rodents and how they're age appropriate. So we've met the rodents. Now we're at the fallen freeze scene. I love big mamas as a set. Yes. I love the beach shack. I love how you've got mama's boys, the band that's playing there. And they have that very, um, very typical, they're a beach sound. I don't know how else to say it. They sound like, uh, they sound like they're a Beach Boy cover band. It's what you expect to hear, but it works. They're the house band, and without getting into the music, because we will talk about the soundtrack shortly. This is where they really play up the bubblegum with Layla and Tanner, mm. and they really cheese it up. And they really sell it. And I absolutely find it to be hysterical. That you could call a parody because this this is like the one area where this goes over the top. But it works. This scene in particular is also where you can start to draw a lot of comparisons to Back to the Future. Because the rash guard that she's has worn is now gone. Mm-hmm. They feel that they're going to become a permanent fixture here. In Back to the Future, Marty's siblings disappear off his photograph, and he starts to disappear as well. Yeah, the not only does the rash guard disappear, but their their clothes they they just magically are in in you know beach surfer yes, clothing. Right, that's age. That's time appropriate. Um, they're wearing that very '60s garb. The other thing, though, yeah, but in a dress, and you know, it's not. Yeah, it's a Hawaiian. Shirt they're not in the '60s bikini. Yes, exactly. They're in like full wardrobe. Um, 
you also get in Back to the Future, Marty rides out when lightning hits the clock tower at 88 miles an hour when he's in the DeLorean because they don't have the plutonium. Here you're riding out on a surfboard in a storm. In Back to the Future, my mom's got the hots for me. Whoa, this is heavy, Doc. When Marty's mother falls for him. Why is that? Because Marty pushes George McFly out of the street and his and who ends up being his grandfather hits him with the car and Lorraine feels bad for him. That was supposed to be George McFly. It happens to Marty McFly. In this film, Tanner is supposed to catch Layla, but it's Brady that catches Layla and Tanner catches Mac. I mean, it is... I don't want to call it a rip-off because I enjoy this film so much. It's a little bit of a rip-off of Back to the Future. No, and they mentioned plutonium as well. There is the throwaway line with Dr. Fusion and, you know, that with the plutonium and Mr. Fusion and all that, but the Back to the Future. And then when they do have the cruising for a bruising musical number, um, Brady's playing a guitar. It's very clear. It's almost the same mm. exact guitar that Marty McFly plays when he does Johnny Be Good at, at the... Uh, enchantment under the sea dance. So you kind of start to pull a, almost a little too much, but where it becomes very, where where they're brilliant here is, and, and of course with having to deflect the affection back onto the other people to right the wrong, that's all back to the future. But the brilliance here is that they've changed the outcome of the film and if they can't get the film back to normal, the storm's always going to happen in Hill Valley. But it doesn't make a difference if he doesn't get his parents to fall in love at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. So he'll never be born. That, but that, that lightning's going to strike. In this film, everything hinges on getting Tanner and Layla back together. And part of what makes it great is because these characters are not real because they live in a movie and because they do the same thing every day, when the movie is changed, they don't know what to do next and they're sort of standing around confused. So, in I feel like you're really manipulating every move possible to get everything back on track. Whereas in Back to the Future, he's just never born if they don't fall in love. Do, do you get what I'm saying here? No, I definitely do. Um, there are definite parallels. I would dare say even it's derivative at times. The guitar, however, gets a little bit of a pass because I think that's just what was popular at the time. And this is almost around the same time when they go back. Mm -hmm. So I, I'll let that one slide. Um, that's the only part that felt like it dragged a little bit to me because when they're supposed to be putting Tanner and Layla together, there's not really enough conflict to keep them apart. And I think that comes from the nature of, you know, I, I think maybe the writers kind of fell into a little bit of a trap here is that you put them in wet side story and there's two, two and a half sets, really. There's the beach, big mama's house and the lighthouse. And that's it. So you can't, do too much with these characters and you can't make them go anywhere really where it creates enough conflict as to why 
Mac and Brady are having so much trouble getting Layla and Tanner to deflect onto each other. It just kind of feels like they're in different places and they didn't do enough to put them together. And especially Brady specifically. The fact that he he can never, he can't figure out at all how they're going to fix this situation. And Mac says, I can't explain it to you, but I can't understand it for you. Yeah, that's annoying. It's like, just tell him. If he's not understanding it, just tell him. But the flip side of that is, on Brady's side, it's like, you know this movie like the back of your hand. Why did it even need that much explaining for you to figure out how you were going to fix this? Well, I think they also could have drawn a little bit more conflict from the fact that this is one of Brady's favorite movies. He's grown up his whole life having a crush on Layla as in like your movie star crush. And like now you have the chance with her. So I love that throughout the film, he's so committed to Mac and, you know, he says explicitly, I have what I want right in front of me, but they could have toyed with that a little bit as like, you have this chance to be with your crush. Why not go for it? Yeah. And you could play up on that too, as you know, you're finally in this thing that you've loved forever. Why would you ever want to leave? And it's not until he realizes at the end that I have to do this for Mac and I can't be selfish. There was a way to really play that up. And he sort of does do that a little bit. It's just not so direct. I feel like they don't explore it enough. Like, even if you had had, he won't even kiss Layla. So if you had him kiss her and then Mac catches him, then maybe she realizes, like, what her true feelings are. And that also would have addressed the issue that we had before of her making her choice. Right. There is a tribute to Beach Party in this uh, scene that follows, because if you listen closely... You can hear in the background there's a song that's playing out of Big Mama's that's called Beach Party. Very clearly is a tribute to those original films. And after we get that little tribute, we are now put into two separate scenes here that are bouncing back and forth against each other. We have the pajama party with the rodent gals. And we have Brady off at Big Mama's house with... The, the surfer guys. The surfer guys. The pajama party specifically, I think to myself, oh, Greece. Greece. With the Sandra D scene. Right. Um, but I really do like this scene here. I think that the dialogue fits, especially when the girls are talking about, like Chi Chi says, a girl will look at your dress a boy will look at how you look in your dress. Right, right, right. And Mac is saying, well, why don't you just dress for yourself? But what I like most about this here, and I don't know if it's brilliant acting by Maya Mitchell, if it's brilliant directing, or a combination of both, I love the way that Mac is sitting on the edge of the bed. Because she's sitting there, she's sort of hunched over, she's so chilled out her body language it's modern and contemporary versus the rest of the girls who are very much in their roles in the 1960s and it it goes so far to set her apart that they're all dressed the same way because she's wearing her 1960s pajamas but she looks nothing like the rest of them it's very subtle but it's it's brilliant it's really good brady 
as well now, you see after he hangs out with Tanner and the guys. And you also get Tanner being fleshed out a little bit more here. Um, because there was always the question of how did a biker fall for a surfer because they're two t- polar opposites. And all, of course, you'd have no wet side story storyline if they didn't fall for each other. But what I like that they did in that scene is that there's a quick line. And, it, and it's funny because Jordan Fisher's in the movie and he, he kind of chimes in on it too when he says... A, the tide wouldn't take out a surfer girl yeah. or a biker girl. And Tanner, who's really just a pretty boy that's dumb up until this point, comes out and says, it doesn't matter if a girl is a biker or a bookworm. If she's cool, she's cool. So they start to subtly flesh him out as being a smarter character than he really is. But they, but they still dumb him down, but for comedic purpose. I like that they made that point, but I feel like it came out of absolutely nowhere. I mean, if you're if you're following the roadmap here that has been laid out in Romeo and Juliet and West Side Story and Greece, like it's time, but there's nothing that the character does that should motivate him to drop that line at this point. Yes and no. I, I I think part of it is that you didn't really get a lot of screen time with Tanner. This is really the first time that you've seen Tanner on his own. He he hasn't had a lot of dialogue up to this point. He hasn't really had a scene that he's controlled. It's either been something that he's doing as it plays out in Wet Side Story, or he's a secondary character to Mac and Brady or Layla. I think I don't think that there was another opportunity for him to be fleshed out prior to this moment. I think my bigger issue is that up until this point, it's it's actually I think that this scene happens too early. Up until this point, he treats Mac like she's any other girl. Right. Much and, to her dismay, and she'll let you know. Yeah, you kind of get the impression that he's a bit of a womanizer. And then in the scene following, he gives her the the headband of flowers and right, said, I thought on, this yeah. would I thought this would look good on you or whatever. And it's the first time we start to see him or you you first start to realize that this is when he likes her for her and not just because she's a pretty girl. So I feel like that line should have come after that to be more believable. Yeah, I, I, I'll go with you on that. Um, I think it makes sense where it is, but I certainly do see your point, and I think it would have worked there as well. What works about the scene most, though, is that Brady is still loving this. Brady is still, you know, he has dialogue with Mac after, and she was like, how was your night? And he was like, it was just cool being one of those guys, if even only for one night. But he's still willing to try to get out. He's mm-hmm. still willing to try to get out of the movie that he loves so much because he he wants to get her home. So you see that you know, prior to this happening, and I think he does say it one more time before they finally get out where it's like, well, why, why do we have to leave? Why can't we just stay? I think early on, he really didn't want to get out. I think he wanted to stay there permanently, but you see where he's starting to grow and he's not going to be selfish and either try to keep them both 
there or send her home on her own. Right, because it's twofold. It's he's landed in his favorite movie in this idyllic setting. And if they stay here, he doesn't lose his girl. Exactly. I think that when we meet Les Camembert and Dr. Fusion, I think they're legitimately funny characters. I do too. Like they shouldn't be because they are stereotypes, but they are so funny and and the bit doesn't really get old. The bit doesn't get old. They pull it off well. Keen Bean from Richie Rich is clearly been typecast, but their plan actually makes sense. It it is the typical greed and selfishness of Let's turn a quick buck and rake people over the coals. So they're going to make this a disgusting, unhabitable beach because of the weather, and they're going to drive everybody away so that they can really just use it for their own gain. It makes a lot of sense, this subplot. I kind of wish they focused on it a little bit more. I mean, you get a couple of scenes with them, but I kind of wish that more of the characters had found out about this plan and they were really working against it other than just once they have Mac and Brady to go save them. And that's where they find out all of this is happening behind the scenes. Yeah. I think what I like about any time they're in a scene and they're working on this machine, this weather changing machine, it's so clear that that machine and the parts are built out of cardboard. Oh yeah. But it's meant to look that way. It's meant to look like a cheap movie set. Well, that's what you were talking about before. It's it's intentionally bad. Yeah. I think the attention to detail, it is intentionally bad, but I do think the attention to detail is really good. I also want to talk about the scene where we we mentioned before the Mac and Layla scene where Mac says to her don't let anybody tell you who you are, who you are, and or how to be. And you said it before, it's more on a friendly, almost sisterly level. But I think what this scene accomplishes very well is, similar to Tanner, we haven't had a lot of private time with Layla. It's been Layla with the rodents, Layla in a group setting. We haven't had a one-on-one conversation really with Layla and anybody where she has at all let her guard down. Mm -hmm. I think this scene serves well to flesh Layla out. Yeah. When she says, I'm not exactly what people, and it's before she says, I want to surf, which is like earth shattering to her because she's a biker. But where she starts to say, people aren't really, I'm not what people think I am. And she has the little line that where she gets Mac laughing where they're talking about how she says, boys, I think sometimes don't tell us what's on their mind because they would they would have to just think more in order to tell us. Right. But they make up for it by being cute and being boys. And she gets a little laugh out of Mac. That's where I think I wish I would have seen Mac start to loosen up a little bit. Because you, you sort of think that she's going to because you think this is where these two are building a relationship and they're going to learn a little something from each other. So I think right. it does a really good job of fleshing out Layla, but it doesn't serve as well to Mac as I had thought it would in my initial viewing of the film. Especially because this would have been a great place for her to realize 
what a great guy Brady is and Mm -hmm. everything that he's doing for her. Yeah. Because then that would set up your next scene when they're really getting sucked in. Yes. And she acknowledges that things are getting bad as far as they might not be able to get out of this film, but she realizes that there are worse things than being in this relationship with Brady and, and feeling like she's stuck with him for lack of a better word. Yes. Changing into the movie with the dry hair. Yes. It's hysterical. It is. And every time she jumps in the water and keeps coming back up with the dry hair, it gets me every time. It doesn't ever really get old for me. Just like Tanner's, hey, (laughs) when he says hey constantly, the way that he delivers it, and he's got those really big bright eyes, it's it's cheesetastic. Everything about him is cheesetastic. I mean, again, it's supposed to be, but I, I think it's a, it's a credit to the acting and the directing. Yes. Yeah. The, I mean, the blatant overacting never gets old. Right. I think it circles back around to what you mentioned earlier with these kids really being convincing in understanding what their roles in these movies are based on the roles that other people had played now nearly 60 years ago. You get another grease knot in there, too, when... The plan is foiled, and Fusion starts to tell Les that we're, we're a flicker on the silver screen, and what does Les respond with? Tell me more. Yes. It is another grease nod. I think that the setup for the sequel was promising. We'll talk about the sequel next week. But I got to be honest with you. I when when they get on that surfboard to leave, I didn't want them to go. I understand why they had to get home. I didn't want them to leave because I I felt that the film up to that point was just so much fun. I didn't want the movie to end. There's also so many tears being shed. I'm wondering if this was like the last scene that they shot mm. because even if you look at some of the background characters that don't really have a lot of lines in the movie they're all crying like i have to imagine this was one of the 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 it might have been the last one for all we know i think that in spite of the fact that you don't see mac really grow while she's spending her time in wet side story i do like that when she gets back to present day and she's back on the mainland she finally does follow her own advice and decides to stay home. I wish we would have seen her grow more in Wet Side Story, but I like the fact that she finally does follow her own advice because I think that was one of the more frustrating things as I watched the movie the first time was it's easy to say, but you're not doing it yourself because she does not want to leave the, you know, where, the West Coast. She doesn't want to go to the prep school, but she's doing it I mean, partially because she believed it's what her mother wanted, but it's, this is what people think I'm going to do. This is what people expect of me. This is what this, this is what that. So you're not following your own advice that you're giving everybody else. I think this is one like minor issue that I have with the film is that for something that is supposed to be so contemporary, it is sort of very small minded in that regard, because this still feels like that conflict of like, To be successful, you have to move away from the small town and go to the big city. 
And I feel like that's a story that we've seen a million times over and it doesn't really fit here because you're trying to make this such a modern film and you know it's 2013 in the age of social media the world gets smaller and smaller and smaller so to be this stereotypical idea of success that they've laid out I don't think anybody relates to that anymore because so many people are successful and they're able to do that, especially now, you know, in, in the wake of this pandemic. So many people are working remotely and you're, you're going to see that more and more and more is that you can be successful on your own terms no matter where you are. So I feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect here because, you know, it was something that she had to realize as a character, but it's something that makes it very hard to relate to in modern times. Well, and I think that even put the pandemic aside, I think that that viewpoint, I'll agree with you, I think that viewpoint was outdated in 2013 when they made the movie. Yes, so, that, that sums it up perfectly. So I think the question you need to ask yourself before we start talking about the music here is, and we'll answer the question when we give our full review, but I want to pose that out there now to the listeners so you can think about it as well. Is the movie out of date? Does the movie hold up? That's the question we will have to ask because I think it's worth circling back around to once we give our final synopsis of the movie. Even though it's not a movie that's that old, because of what you just brought up and everything else, I wonder, does the movie hold up? I think we've spent enough time discussing and fleshing out the characters here, so I think we're just going to jump right to the music, which I think is, while I, while I really like the story... I think what makes this movie so special and I think what it what puts this movie ahead of so many other decoms is the music. Yeah, and I don't think that's just because we tend, you know, we like the Beach Boys. We've seen them in concert. I don't think it's that we gravitate to this sort of music to begin with. It's just that they did such a good job here. Right. And if you've never seen Uncle Jesse perform forever, you need to get your tickets and go see America's Favorite Uncle because he still plays with the Beach Boys. First song on the soundtrack is Oxygen. It is sung by Maya Mitchell. It is clearly what they were using to go for the radio hit. I think they thought that was going to be a big-time summer Top 40 song. Especially because she's not actually singing it. It's the open. They're setting up her relationship with Brady. Um, And I think it would have cheapened it because like I was saying before, all of your musical numbers take place within the confines of wet side story. So to see them singing it, then it would have felt like a parody. You would have lost us from the very beginning, but I agree with you. I think it, it was like column A, column B. It served the story better, but they were also going for the hit with it. They were. And I think what impresses me about this song is that for a soundtrack where they really did have to go out of their way to make it sound authentic to the 1960s and give it sort of like that rockabilly beach feel that you could write an entire soundtrack like that, but give, give us a song that is so modern and so top 40 when compared to the rest of it. And I think it really works here to set the movie up. Definitely. And I think it does a good job of setting up uh, the character as well. 
we go into Wet Side Story, and we are introduced to the gang. And we are introduced to the first of many, many, many earworms, Surf Crazy. I think it fits the film, and by it fits the film, I mean both. It fits Wet Side Story, and it fits Teen Beach Movie. Definitely. I think this is shot better than any of the genre films. I mean, you're a stat, and this is where it does get a little, a little bit parody-ish. You know, you've got the beach set up, you've got the, the surfboards, you've got the bright colors, but I think that also serves to drive home. It's almost like Dorothy landing in Oz is, you know, when she gets out of the black and white and everything is obviously it's in color, but it's because this world is so much better than what she's coming, coming from. And in this case, it kind of puts us in Brady's shoes because he loves this movie and this is his ideal. Right. But I feel like, you know, like you said, 100% it's an earworm. But the way that this is choreographed with the surfboards and the blankets and like the actual dancing itself, I think this is better than anything that came out in the 60s. And it's impressive because they are dancing on the sand. Yes. I, I don't think you can overlook that. And some of those shots were taken from some of those early beach films. But I feel like this is an authentic throwback. Like, this is something that I can hear playing on an oldie station now that would have been a big ripoff of the Beach Boys back in the early 60s when everybody was trying to be the Beach Boys. And especially because toward the end of the song, they do go for straight parody where they break it down and they each introduce themselves. You know, they break the fourth wall. They're looking right in, into the camera and they introduce themselves Mickey Mouse Club style. Yep. It's hysterical. This, honestly, the first time I saw it, when she she runs up to the camera and she's like, I'm Giggles. I'm like, oh my God. Like it you, it hurt my you soul. Groaned out, but you <laughs> had actually, because the first time you saw this, you hadn't seen the beach movies. And I think that was the first mistake. I should have shown you the beach movies before I showed you this. Well, because up until this point, I thought it, they were going for a parody. And I was like, oh my God, is this going to be an hour and a half of one of these movies just done completely over the top? This is where they're walking a fine line and they don't cross it. Mm-hmm. I also want to bring up, we, you mentioned the Mickey Mouse Club just now. And we talked about Annette Funicello, obviously is a Disney legend, got her start with the Mickey Mouse Club. Interesting note about Annette Funicello in the beach movies. She wears a one-piece bikini. In all of the it, beach that's movies. That's not a bikini then. That's well, a one-piece. Well, a one-piece. A one-piece bathing suit. She's not wearing a bikini. She's wearing a, a one-piece bathing suit. Out of respect to Walt Disney. Because she now was only a few years away. I mean, 10 years maybe removed from the Mickey Mouse Club. I don't even think it was that many. Maybe five or six years. She said, I would not want to disappoint Mr. Disney. I've seen... Th I, that's cute. That is cute, but I've seen conflicting reports because I thought she might have still been under contract with Disney at the time and the Beach movies were borrowing her and he didn't want her carrying the Disney name like that. But they do make a nod to it here because all of these bathing suits that they're wearing, they're in bikinis, but they're all high-waisted. Like, you see no belly buttons, and that was the whole thing with Annette, too, is that she didn't want to show her belly button. And I, I, I wanted to throw that out there while it was on my mind. But that's that's an interesting note. I didn't even 
pick up on that myself. Yeah, if you watch through the entire movie, nobody nobody flashes a navel. I guess I'll have to go back and watch it again. Hooray! Um, <laughs> well, I, we'll just look out for it in the sequel. I love that the music changes as soon as the rodents walk in. Yep. And you go from the beach sound to that rockabilly doo-wop to sound. To the jukebox. In cruising for a bruising. It's everything that Greece wishes it was, <laughs> but is not. I was going to say, this is actually, I think, my favorite number. I love the song. I love the choreography. I love, you know, we were talking about how cool the set of Big Mamas is before. Yeah. But it so serves this number because they have all of the booths on, on like your main level and the dance floor is sort of sunken underneath it. And they just exploit that in this number with the angles that they're shooting in. It is so good. And really, Ross Lynch steals the show in this he's number. Incredible. Like, th- honestly, this kid should have gotten an Emmy for what he did. He, he nails the choreography. He's a great dancer. But I think like he just gets it. He gets the genre. He gets the era that they were going for. Yeah, I think it's one of the best numbers in the film. I think that when Brady jumps in and he's, and it's every time when he jumps in and he gets into his first line, when he decides he's going to join the musical number, it leaves me in stitches every time he gets in. It's like, how did he get there? But there he is. You can tell he's always wanted to do it. And he says so much at the end. I mentioned the Marty McFly nod earlier, but I think what I love about this so much, other than the fact that it's a great number and the choreography is insane. You can tell the cast had an absolute blast. Definitely. The fun really does show through. I think that also has to do with them not having to shoot on on the beach in Puerto Rico. Yes, probably. Maybe a little air conditioning in there. The next song I think is actually probably the best song of the movie. And that's Fallen For You. Because when I listen to Fallen For You, I hear the Ronettes. I hear... I hear Carol King. I hear the Carol King top 40 pop songs that she used to write for other people. And I think that this, of all of them, probably is the most authentic because it doesn't sound like, and I think it's the way that Grace Phipps sings it as well because she plays Layla. It doesn't sound like a pop singer from the 2000s that's trying to sing a throwback. I think she performs it really well. It's not a Megan Trainer song. Exactly. Sorry, no disrespect, but that Megan Trainer is very deliberate in her career. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's a combination. I, I agree with you. It's probably the best song in the movie, though not my personal favorite. Um, that's not to say that it's it's not good. It's great. But I think it's the way that the actress embraces it um, and the way that she sings it. I think tonally, it just feels like it, it could have been a radio hit back then. It would have been. That's I hear that song, and I think if it were 1962 and this got released on vinyl, that it would have been a number one hit. And I think it also, you know, it serves for the story here. Like, this is when we're supposed to fall in love with her because in Wet Side Story, not in Teen Beach Movie, but in Wet Side Story, this is when we're supposed to fall in love with our leading lady, and you do. It's just, this is where the movie really gets turned on its head because technically Layla is not our leading lady. Right. 
and it's where it takes most from Back to the Future. In we've changed the movie and now we have to fix everything. Right. In and order to get home. Like we said, our leading lady is kind of annoying. I wouldn't go so far as to say she's annoying because I do like Mac, but I said it before. At times she comes off a little too pouty. Yes. And I don't think that's a knock at the actress. I think in that aspect, it's poor writing for her specifically. Well, the combination of all of it annoys me. Fair enough. Meant to be. This is the most quote-unquote Disney song in the movie. The harmonies are on point. But it's like perfect Disney, though. Yeah. Um, Like, if you close your eyes, I'm thinking Zac Efron and Vanessa Hudgens. Mm Mm-hmm. Or I can, honestly, when I hear this, I think about, um, uh, oh, what's the song from Frozen? I'm, I'm dying right now. I can't remember the name. Love is an Open Door. Love and, yes, that's it. Uh, it's been a long day and I'm under-caffeinated. Love is an Open Door. I, f- for some reason, I hear that when I listen to this. Yes. If yeah, you're sense, right. right. I'm surprised that I never really put those two together. But I guess because I just enjoy the song, the the whole sequence so much for what it is. You know, they're, everything is lit with the Edison lights and they're under the surfboards and they're kind of doing like that, that peekaboo thing. It's, it's, it's very cute. It's shot so yeah. well. I love the way that this the song plays for Tanner and Layla but also for Mac and Brady. And this is where I start getting frustrated with Mac because you can see that you can see that Mac is starting to realize that this song is not just about Tanner and Layla. It's about herself and Mac. And she even starts having fun here when she's dancing with Tanner and she's smiling and she's laughing. And you think again, Okay, she's starting to embrace this a little bit, and she's gonna take something away from this film. No, she took a necklace away from this movie. <laughs> that was the takeaway. So, again, for me personally, this is another instance where I think you have a really good character in Mac, and I think you squandered a lot of opportunity with her. Right, because this is where she stu- should have started to put the pieces together that her meant to be is Brady. But she did start putting them together. That's the thing. I I feel that she did, but they kept regressing her. I don't know. That you guys can let us know. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Email us monorealradio at gmail.com and let us know what you think. Like me. Next song. It's a great back and forth. This is what's happening going back and forth between Big Mamas and the pajama party at Layla's. I love that they're showing the progression of the roles, of the genders. You know, right? How it's so stark, you know, the stark contrast between the roles in the 1960s and now the roles in the 2000s. And honestly, I like this more than Mac constantly talking about it. That's where if she would have said it once or twice and then had a moment in the song like she does here it would have shown enough restraint and I don't think she would have come off quite as pouty as she does. I agree with you. Um, this is actually, it's really a toss-up between this and Cruising for a Bruising for my favorite sequence. Is it a rip-off of Tell Me More from Greece? Yes, yep. absolutely. But it's a catchy song. It reflects the times because you've got Layla singing about the woman's role and Mac... Ma- you know they're paralleling each other 
Um, and same thing on the guy's end, too. So the way it all comes together is is brilliant because this is the one song that actually does move the story forward because this is where Layla starts to learn from Mac and Mac is starting to teach her something and you get Tanner's end of it as well where it's okay to like somebody just because you like them. It doesn't matter what sort of group they're from or what their archetype is. Um, so I think this was really a smart way and a fun way to bring all those ideas together. Yes. I also think the choreography here between... It's excellent. It's excellent throughout. Specifically, I like it with Tanner and Brady because, again, it's showing the stark con uh, stark contrast between choreography of the 1960s and modern-day choreography and how even on that level it's progressed. So it does a good job of really driving a wedge between these two characters. Not, not in the sense that they're conflicting with each other, but driving a wedge between the generational gap. Right, because we've talked about it so much where, you know, they, they address it on the girls' side about what the female role was back then. But even on... Brady and Tanner's end of it, they're singing about how, you know, Tanner's all about impressing the girls and, and his looks and Brady's singing about just be straight with her and tell, tell her how you feel. And it shows the difference and how far the guy's mentality has come to. Right. How much do you love when they have the they have those uh, false walls when that the, they're changing when the behind stage flips and it stage flips and they, it. Yeah. So much. How much do you love that? It's like musical 101, but like that's the part of, of classic musical. I, I ate it up. And how about when Mac gets her makeover from the girls in the rodents? Sandy. <laughs> exactly. It's a grease ripoff. But I got to say, like, she looks great. Yeah. She does. I mean, I love the surfer gear, but like what they chose, I mean, like, okay, it's the tight leather pants and everything, but like, it's just, it's a credit to Maya Mitchell because she pulls off that hair, which is yes. not the, easy to do. The, the big poof, flower, oh. it, it looks convincing and she's miserable in it. And I think that in spite of the fact that we've sort of beaten Mac as a character a little <laughs> bit here, I do think Maya Mitchell was great and can't stop singing is her best part in this movie because of the physical comedy. She nailed it. She's absolutely outstanding in this scene because she has now started to morph into the movie, so she breaks out into a random musical number. And first off, the girl can dance. She's a great dancer. And she's doing this really fun, whimsical dance, but the look on her face is of disgust. It is not easy to do. It's the equivalent of like pat your head and rub your tummy because mm -hmm. you said it. She can dance. I'm thinking she's got some sort of classical training or at least taken dance lessons when she's a kid. And like what happens with that? Your recital, your your teachers, you know, before you run out on the stage and I used to dance, so I know it well. You're in the, the frilly sequiny costume and your teacher's like, OK, big smiles, go out there. And. To have to betray that kind of training is impossible. I, I don't know how she pulled it off because her, her face is in anguish and her body is like, okay, jazz hands. It's really yes. not easy to do. Um, and when 
her hands want to go do jazz hands and her hips start swinging and she has to literally grab them and stop them. It's the whole thing is brilliant. And they're doing it in the beating sun of Puerto Rico. Let's not forget that. And I love maybe that's where the face came from. Yeah, And I love watching her against Brady, who is just like, I don't want to make it stop. I want to have a good time. Brilliant juxtaposition between the two of them. And it's a great moment. It's a great number between Maya Mitchell and Ross Lynch. And then they tap dance, too. Yeah. Again, very impressive. Yeah. Coolest Cats in Town is the last song of the film. It's a mix of old and new. It's fun. Um, You know how I feel about the cast coming out for one more musical number? Uh, I mean, this this is fine, but it doesn't do it for me. It's I, it's by far the weakest song and the weakest. No, it, listen, the choreography is great, and it's nothing against the kids. They sing it great, but it's the weakest song in the movie. But it's a musical. It's got to end with a musical number. I mean, for as much as I hate Grease, can you imagine that not ending with We Go Together? Come on. I can't, but Grease is, I mean, the, here's the thing. Y- you kind of get into mucky water here because Grease is a musical. For all, for in every sense of the word, this is a. It's not a parody. It's not a spoof. But they're not. They're in a movie that's a musical, and then we come back to modern day, well, and you're no longer in the musical anymore. I'm realizing now I am wrong. I said what makes this sort of exploit the genre and makes it all work is that all of the music is contained within Wet Side Story. Here, they bring you out of it, and it's not, you're right, it's not really a credit scene. This is the end to the movie. So they should have left all the music in Wet Side Story, and it would have made the reality of it that much more, you know, it would have made it more authentic when she chooses to stay. And instead, they all, you know, they break out into song, and what what feels like is missing to me because it is sort of an over the credit scene is that the 60s cast should have come out and joined them for it especially when you have your credit scene and they come to the beach anyway so i would have rather this been like the end of jersey boys i know you hate it i hate it i hate it i hate it where they all come out and dance again or the end of newsies where they're all dancing if you would have just made it the credit scene with the full cast here you kind of just it was like two steps forward one step back by bringing the music into the real world final synopsis of 2013's teen beach can i go first go for it i'm embarrassed with how much i like this movie (laughs) i'm embarrassed with how much i like this movie it gets better every time i love the music i love the sets i love the costumes I love when you put this up against the other beach movies, the parallels. I think that they uh, completely accomplished their goal. Their mission was to right some of the wrongs and pick fun at some of those other movies. I think they do it in spades. And I really do enjoy watching this movie. And I think this is going to be a very unpopular opinion. This is better than High School Musical. I think... Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed High School Musical more than I thought I would. And I think I even said then I was embarrassed with how much I enjoyed it. But the difference between this and High School Musical, the, the story of High School Musical is fine. I like Vanessa Hudgens and Zac Efron together. That's fine. Um, 
I like how they play up on sort of the stereotypes and archetypes of, uh, of you know, high school. Um, that's fine. I think I said before, the story itself is fine. But what makes, what makes this different is I think the music in that movie is, I think it's very good. I think at times it's too cheesy. But what I like most about this, there's no awkward bop to the top siblings in this <laughs> that you get in high school musical. I think maybe we'll watch Raiders of the Lost Ark tonight so you can get your man card back. We, oh, yeah. We watch, let's watch Ghostbusters. Okay, fine. Um, no, I agree with you. Uh, better than high school musical, hands down. I think for me personally, it's slightly more relatable. I think if I had had this as a kid, I would have been all about it. Like this would have been the way that people obsessed over high school musical. This would have been it for me. Um, I definitely think that it holds up despite that one issue that we had as far as it being dated for 2013 in that you have to move to the big city to be successful. Um, I I think that's just an overall flaw with the movie. I think there could have been more motivation for her to want to go. Um, and, and they could have maybe given her different reasoning other than her mom, or maybe, maybe that's where her father is or something. And the aunt came and it's like, you're going to go live with your father for the rest of high school, which I can't think of it off the top of my head, but I feel like that's the plot of another movie. So that's maybe why they didn't do it. But um, I feel like even though that makes it dated, we can overlook that because it's not dated in the sense of the 60s movies. Um, I think that they were able to right a lot of the wrongs of those films, starting with the woman's role and... Also, the fact that those films are are largely whitewashed, they definitely address that here with a very diverse cast. Um, So I think that this was definitely a story worth telling in the sense of they sort of poked fun at it, but not really. They were able to unfold what was laid out in the 60s and, and really improve on it by putting wet side story within the context of the bigger picture. Um, And I I think they just did it in, in a really creative and fun way. We've reviewed a few DCOMs on this show. I think off the top of my head, obviously Dean beach high school musical one, two, three Halloween town. Don't look under the bed. Where does this movie rank on that list? Got to go. Number one, right? Oh, for sure. Number one. Yeah. I think without a doubt, this is so far the number one DCOM we have reviewed on this show. No, and I'm hoping that we're not completely let down by the second one. Because if you think of what High School Musical was and then High School Musical 2, I really hope that's not the case here. Especially because they didn't go for the full franchise and they didn't do a third film. I know there was a, there was a lot of debate about that. I read an interview with the director Jeffrey Hornaday uh, who had done another Disney, f- uh, another decom uh, called Geek Charming? So that's why he got picked for this. And there were obvious parallels to High School Musical. And while the intent was not to 
capture that same lightning in a bottle again. The parallels were obvious just because of the cast that they chose and the story that they were telling. So I think the hope was there that it was going to be another hugely successful franchise film. Um, So I'm not sure why they didn't go for the third one. And obviously, I've never seen Teen Beach 2. So I have maybe (laughs) maybe the answer is there of why they just, you know, closed the book and ended the story. It is. Um, all right. <laughs> I'll just set that up for you. And I'm sorry, because I, I did just spoil my review for next week's uh, episode. Let me ask you this. One more question before we uh, get out of here. I half jokingly and only half jokingly said that I was embarrassed with how much I love this film. In sp- because but you're of, not. But, I, but, but part of me isn't. You can make the case that um, High School Musical is very much made for 13-year-olds. I think that I said in the review of that where there are a lot of things you can take away as an adult that that you enjoy, but a lot of it is a little childish. But it's still an endearing movie. It's a cute cute movie. It's got a good soundtrack. I like the cast. There's enough there. Mm -hmm. The other two are... The second one is unwatchably bad, and the third one is not as bad, though not great. Teen Beach movie. Is this made exclusively for 13-year-olds, or do you think this is a movie everybody can enjoy? Because I'm on the side of the fence where I think anybody of any age can really love this movie. No, I mean, I just said I I wish I had been a kid watching it. And that's not to say that I don't appreciate it now, but I'm saying I wish I would have like been caught in the obsession of it. Because this is so fun, and there's so much more here for me than there is in High School Musical. But I think that has to do with, yes, this is a lot broader in what you can relate to and what you like about it. It's not like High School Musical where you sort of have to like pick things out to enjoy. Sure. We're interested in knowing what you guys have to say about Teen Beach Movie. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Not a ton of news this week. But we do have some housekeeping that we need to tend to. Yes, we want to thank Tony from the Disney Discussions podcast who left us a five-star review. So thank you for that and for the kind words. And for all of you out there that have not left a a review yet, perhaps you've been meaning to or haven't even thought about it, we would love for you to give us a review on iTunes because every little bit helps. And we want to be able to keep giving you guys new and creative content and things that you guys would be interested in, like our Dan Lanigan interview. We did a little bonus episode where Dan came on the show and we discussed you know, his hobby as a collector and we discussed and we reviewed prop culture and he gave us that peek behind the curtain. We want to be able to do more of that for you as the listener because you guys have really been very supportive of us and we want to make sure that we're still giving you guys great content. So the best way to do that is to leave that five-star review on iTunes. Don't forget, hit the subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. Follow us on all that social media. Again, that's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and TikTok as well, at Monoreal Radio. And you can also check out monorealradio.com, where we have links to all of the uh, episodes of Monoreal Radio. In fact, it's not even a link anymore. You can just listen to it right through the website. The whole player's We've embedded. We've given you a one-stop shop for everything Monoreal Radio. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week. We will be back next week to review and discuss... Teen Beach 2. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.